the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Check out monorail.com, America's affordable investment app made for conservatives who want to keep their hard-earned money with companies that share their value. Download the Monorail app today. Join Monorail. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Dennis Prager Radio Show. I know what you're thinking. This does not sound like Dennis Prager whatsoever, at least not the Dennis Prager I know. And trust me, Dennis is not transition genders. Uh, I'm a new person. This is Amla Benobi. I'm 22 years old, and I'm a PragerU personality and host of a show called Unapologetic Live, which you can check out on all podcast platforms, plus on Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. So check me out. I know a few of you probably know who I am, but for those of you who don't, as I said before, my name is Amla Benobi. I'm 22 years old, a former leftist, reformed, now conservative, working at PragerU. So I figure I should start off the show today by telling you a little bit about my story. I was born and raised in a small rural conservative town in central Florida by a single mother of three who worked tirelessly to provide for me, my younger sister, and my older brother on very little income. So shout out to my mom for for being a great mother and doing great things uh, with little resources in her life. But my mother happens to be a very radical leftist. She continues to work for the left to this day. So I grew up with that influence in my life. I don't think that race is all that important, but my mom happens to be white and I happen to be biracial, black and white. So from a very young age, I was taught that by virtue of being born half black and half white in America, life might be a little bit harder for me. There might be some hurdles placed in front of my success and my flourishing in this country due to this country's history, the way our systems and our institutions were built, and that systemic racism just happened to be baked into them. So as you can imagine, I was not the happiest young child in middle school and high school with these ideas in my head. I had a fight to fight, and it was a big one, and I thought there was no better avenue to take in life than the avenue of activism. And I'm sure many of you hear that and laugh. I laugh, but only in retrospect. So throughout middle school and high school, I was that angry young kid who was talking about politics when nobody wanted to hear what I had to say, talking about women's reproductive rights and the march for our lives and racial inequities and police brutality, giving speeches on any given day to a bunch of students who had no interest in what I had to say whatsoever. But... By doing this and practicing this, I became really good at running my mouth. I still am to this day, which is why I'm sitting here hosting this radio show. So I really made that into a job position for myself. I graduated high school and I thought, higher education, no thank you. I'll go and pursue activism full time. 
I got a job working at my mother's organization as a youth organizer and coordinator, which essentially meant that I was traveling around to different middle schools and high schools, finding young people who were maybe disillusioned with the political system as it stood today, already leaning left. Maybe they had a Democrats club at the school. I would go infiltrate these clubs, have discussions with these kids about socialism, feminism and patriarchy, racism and and racial structures in America, having them take tests to check their privilege, and essentially funneling them through the organization that I was working for. So these young kids who were maybe politically disinterested or slightly involved in politics were then becoming activists themselves. We'd go to these schools, take them with us to different events and protests that we had staged. They would be door knocking and educating others about how to vote different candidates as the election cycles came through. And that was what my life was. And I was feeling fulfilled, so I thought, although depression and anxiety was looming over me at all times due to the depressive nature of leftist ideology and specifically woke leftist ideology. So I worked this job for about a year or so and slowly but surely began to recognize that leftist ideology was not for me. As I said before, I was feeling depressed, I was feeling anxious, I was going into work every day and hearing a lot of racist rhetoric towards white people in particular, and then having to finish work at 5 o'clock and head home to a white family that had done nothing but provide and care for me my entire life and set me up for a life of success and flourishing and good values. So, as you can probably imagine... These ideas of systemic racism and inherent racism for white people are really hard to hold in your head when you have such great examples of white people and white family in your life. So I was quickly confronted with the pitfalls of what I had thought at the time, and I had a bunch of questions swirling around my brain and essentially no one to answer them. And when I had reached out to the higher-ups at this organization to get some clarity about why the tolerant side that I think that I'm working for is actually not so tolerant, I was told that I just simply didn't know how oppressed I was and that it was my job to figure that out. They were right about the second part. It was my job to figure it out. And I did what any young Gen Z person would do, and I took to the internet. And I ended up finding PragerU videos. I found Dennis Prager. I found Tom Soule. I found Dave Rubin. I found Larry Elder. I found all these amazing people who I'm sure many of you know and love. And they were all, through a screen, willing to talk to me and willing to confront some of the questions that I had for them. And they did so, for the most part, in a very compassionate way way. I want to make that very clear. The conservatives who I found on the internet that spoke to me were the compassionate ones, not those that were filled with vitriol, not those that wanted to tell me that I was brainwashed. Those kind of conservative pundits I immediately turned off and went on to to the next. But these people resonated with me, and I realized, wow, if I'm wrong about one subject, what else am I wrong about? And down the rabbit hole I fell looking for more answers to some of the questions that I found. And as you can imagine, (laughs) what a frightful time this was for me. 
Did I turn out to be the very thing that I hated? A conservative? The boogeyman that was always hiding under my bed waiting to get me because I was born black and female in America? Maybe I am. And I had to sit there, look in the mirror, and confront myself with this idea that this could possibly be where I end up. And eventually, I came to terms with it and just began to live my life in that way. And it was an easier transition than many would think. At first, I was angry, angry at myself for believing the things that I thought, angry at others for having taught me those things throughout my life. But eventually, it's fulfilling in that you realize that you are the maker of your life. No longer am I sitting in an ocean of injustice just being flailed around by whoever thinks I should be oppressed that given day. I am now the person who gets to make the choice in my life, and those choices directly affect me. I get to take extreme ownership and accountability for myself. And while that might not sound like the most fun thing to do in life, it is the most fulfilling. So I woke up and I left that organization that I was working for, and I took up a job in a medical office, just working as an assistant and as a technician, and I thought, no more politics for the rest of my life. I don't want any more arguments. I don't want to have to battle this every single day. And eventually, I downloaded an app called TikTok, and on TikTok, I found a bunch of leftists who were espousing the very same ideology that I had been putting out into the world not even a year prior, and I thought somebody needs to be on here to counteract this. Why don't I turn on my iPhone, tell my story, post it on the internet, see what happens. This started as a hobby, and little did I know, these videos were going to take off, not because people loved them, but because people hated them. <laughs> and they took off with all of the hatred that I was getting on the internet, and of course, with the hatred came an influx of support from like-minded, free-thinking, and conservative individuals who wanted to see me succeed. So it came, it became a career. And PragerU reached out to me. They found one of my videos on the internet and said, we would love to have you come and tell your story. They ended up offering me a job. And now here I am working at PragerU, talking about this transition, talking about our values, talking about culture and politics, and specifically trying to reach out to Gen Z, my very own generation, to show that there are other options. And not to, not to necessarily convert them, but just to show them you can think freely and you can allow others to think freely and you can open up your mind to other ideas even if you dislike those ideas. So that's what I'm talking about every day at PragerU. Again, you can check out my show at Unapologetic Live on YouTube and on all podcast platforms. And that's my story. I figured I should introduce myself to you to get started here. If you'd like to support the work that we're doing, you can go to PragerU.com donate. And this week, your donations will be double matched. That's right double matched so check me out at prageru.com we'll be back the dennis prager show every day when i pass a mirror i still can't believe it it's me i'm looking back at myself i never thought i'd be this fit again but 42 pounds ago i decided to take control of my health and with the help of my phd weight loss and nutrition I'm so glad I did. The program is simple. Dr. Ashley Lucas and her amazing team customize a plan for your body to make it simple. They even provide 80% of your food at no additional cost. They treat your entire person as one. Dr. Ashley believes that all change starts with the mind. 
She'll help you to change your behavior when it comes to food and think differently about food so you'll never gain the weight back. Give them a call right now at 864-644-1900 and they can answer all your questions. If I can do it, you can do it. All right, and we're back, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning. I'm your sit-in host, Amla Epinobi from PragerU. Now, we're celebrating Women's Month this month, right? (laughs) Right, everybody? Aren't we all celebrating? Yesterday was International Women's Day. So I I think many on the the left and on the progressive end of things are thinking no better way to celebrate than to continue erasing women. And we we need to talk about this story here. Here's a headline out of New York Post. (laughs) USA powerlifting to allow trans athletes to compete with women after losing suit. So a U.S. powerlifter and transgender lifter by the name of J.C. Cooper won his discrimination case against the organization. Apparently, uh, she, he, I guess we're going to get mixed up with the pronouns here, as we always do on, on trans issues. Cooper filed a complaint with the Minnesota Department of Human Rights in 2019, claiming the organization had violated that state's Human Rights Act after he was barred from competing in the women's division. In 2021, he filed a lawsuit against the USA powerlifting in state court. Quote, I was fed up with the way I was being treated. I was fed up with the way that my community was being treated. And enough was enough. And the court heard out J.C. Cooper and said, you know what? This is discrimination. You as a biological male should be able to compete in the women's division, (laughs) USA, powerlifting. Now, I cannot help but get that sentence out of my mouth whilst laughing because we have just abandoned all sense of science, all sense of truth in the modern day and age, so much so that we are willing to allow biological men and the strength of biological men to compete against biological women. Do you all remember when the feminist movement said that women were consistently markers of oppression (laughs) due to the patriarchy, due to toxic masculinity and, and male strength, Well, we've abandoned that narrative because now biological men are able to compete against women and win their accolades, steal their achievements, steal their places, and steal everything that they've worked for. And my common saying now is, I guess, that nobody does womanhood quite like a man. And that's what we're about to witness right now in USA powerlifting. (laughs) I just can't say it without laughing. Now, a lot of people retort back and say, well, why do you even care? For the most part, nobody even watches women's sports. You guys don't support it. I don't see anybody watching the WNBA, yet here you are complaining about the fact that women are losing their places in these sports. And on its face... I think we should be fighting for this, even if it was simply just a battle that was happening in sports. It's important. Women do fight hard and work hard for the positions that they have within their respective fields and within their respective sports. We should allow them that space. For so long, the feminist movement fought for safe spaces for women. Now that you have them, why not inject a few biological males into them? But it's not just about sports. This is an idea that proliferates. It's going to move beyond sports. In fact, it already has. On my show yesterday, we covered a story out of New Jersey where two 
female inmates were impregnated by a transgender inmate by the name of Demi Minor after that inmate was moved into the female facility in New Jersey. It was as simple as saying, I identify as female, and they were transferred over to a female facility where later two female inmates were impregnated. Can we think about how that can go wrong in more ways than just that? Now, not only do you have two pregnant inmates in a New Jersey prison, but you also have two children that are going to be born into the world. And under what circumstance? The circumstance of both of their biological parents being incarcerated? I'm sure these kids are going to be thrust straight into the foster system. And we all know what the outcomes look like for those children and how what the odds are for, for them being abused or even perpetrating abuse for them not graduating high school, for them never seeing the inside of a college, for them seeing the inside of a jail, developing chronic illnesses, being homeless, the likelihood is far higher when you are born under circumstances like this. But who cares, right? Because we want to validate and affirm people who are living in a delusion. And it's a delusion that should be taken seriously, don't get me wrong. These people should seek proper treatment But the proper treatment is not to morph the reality of other individuals living in the society and leave them to be victimized by your ideology and your dogma. And it's not just New Jersey where this is happening. It's happening right here in this very state of California where these ideas are being entertained. And as much as the left talks about feminism and even prison reform, women and female prisoners in this state are crying out not even for a feeling of being threatened, but a direct threat to their livelihoods. And that is a biological male in their presence. In California, you even have inmates who have been convicted of sexual assault against women applying to be moved to female facilities. And all it takes is an application, and the California state prison system will hear you out on your self-identification as a female. Can we think about all the places where this goes wrong? And when in history have we ever looked at women and said, you know what, we don't want to hear your story of victimization. Do you all remember the Me Too movement and the hashtag Time's Up movement where we told women to stand up and be strong and stand for themselves and be honest about when they're being victimized or assaulted? Now, the young girls who are swimming for the NCAA, who are subjected to Leah Thomas's naked male body in the locker rooms, they have to modulate their voices, wear masks, and stand behind curtains in order to talk about what's happening to them in their everyday locker rooms. I can't think of a space that is meant to be more safe than a locker room, a place of vulnerability for young women, where they are changing in front of each other and getting in the headspace to compete against one another in some of the most important points in their lives. But let's just allow a biological male to walk in naked and sexually assault these women, essentially. Nobody cares about their victimhood anymore. Nobody cares what they have to say. So I must reiterate, it's not just about sports. These ideas, when accepted in one arena, move on to the next and on to the next and on to the next. And it is so difficult for women to even have these conversations at baseline. But now, when they try to talk about them, they are called transphobes. 
J.K. Rowling, the famous writer of the Harry Potter series, has been experiencing this for a very long time now as she tries to advocate for women. And she's doing a good job. She's standing up for herself and she continues to be an advocate. But think about the women who don't have the platform that she has, that don't have the support that she has. What are they meant to do when this is happening to them? Something needs to be done about it. So again, it's not just sports, although now we're going to get to witness it in surfing, skateboarding, powerlifting, oh goodness, everything you can imagine, it's happening. And it all is bent on this bending of reality. Now you can hear more from me on this subject matter by going and watching Unapologetic Live and support the work we do at PragerU.com slash donate. Good morning, everybody. I'm your sitting host, Amla Benobi. I had to take some time today to talk about an issue that is near and dear to my heart, and that is law enforcement. Here in LA, I've had some very interesting run-ins with law enforcement in my support of the work that they do. And this is not to negate the real instances of, of police brutality or police malpractice, but to say that that is not the majority of police officers in law enforcement. These are amazing men and women who are choosing to take on the job of protecting the people around them and working within their communities. And the police officers that I know, I will say, are wonderful men and women who are not only police officers, but they are teachers, they are parents, they are social workers in the work that they're doing, and they really are just doing amazing work day in and day out and working to shine the best light on their profession. Now, one of the craziest stories that I've ever been through, one of the craziest experiences that I've ever had is doing a ride along in Watts here in South Central LA. I've done many of these now in the past couple of years because I'm well acquainted with police and talk about the work that they do quite often. But one time I was on a, a ride along late in, at night and driving down a residential area in Watts when all of a sudden we noticed a car had been crashed straight into a tree. Of course, the police officers had to get out and respond, and a woman ran into the street screaming about how they needed paramedics. She was covered in blood, wearing gloves. Little did we know that she was a nurse who was not working at the time. And as the police officers ran over to the car, they found that behind it was a young man who had been shot to death by a gang in the area and in the neighborhood. And when I tell you that so many of the people living in these areas are desensitized to gun violence, there were young kids sitting outside watching as this man passed away right on the street. And who's there to respond to it? None other than your LAPD police officers who are seeing violence like this and death and destruction far too often and far more than any human should ever have to. Now, I want you to hear this clip from a D.C. police chief talking about homicide in his area. Guns off the street. What we got to do, if we really want to see homicides go down, is keep bad guys with guns in jail. Because when they're in jail, they can't be in community shooting people. So when people talk about what we're going to do different or what we should do different, what we need to do different, that's the thing that we need to do different. We need to keep violent people in jail. Right now, the average homicide suspect, the average homicide suspect has been arrested 11 times prior to them committing a homicide. That is a problem. That is a problem. 
It is a massive problem, and it seems that in progressive metropolitan areas, in particular, we are deciding to take on somewhat of a soft on crime approach when what we need is, in fact, the exact opposite. And who is left there to deal with it? Police officers who are already demoralized by the, the nature of what BLM movements, where calls for defunding the police happened for for years on ends. Cities were were burned down. Police officers were spit at, attacked, and assaulted. Now they're meant to return to work, work on making these communities safer. All while many people in America can't even muster up any respect for them, and the laws are not supporting the work, the very important work that they need to do. Here in LA, you have young men getting caught with guns on the streets and being right back out on the street the very next day. We are incentivizing career criminals, not just in in LA, but in all of our major cities. Here in California, with these new loitering laws that they've passed, police officers are no longer able to check in on women who are victims of prostitution rings, quite literally standing out in the street with little to nothing on. If you drive down Figueroa, this is what we're seeing in our cities: people doing drugs on the streets, prostitutes on the streets, gang violence running rampant. And who's there to deal with it? None other than the low-income people of color that the left and progressives claim to be advocating for, claim to be fighting for. Can you express to me exactly how you are fighting for these people when this is what their neighborhoods look like? And I've had the opportunity to see this with my very own eyes, as I just told you with that story, and it's horrific. I can't imagine having to go through this and worry about this on a daily basis. So I am an avid supporter of our law enforcement, at least the good ones. And I talk about that a lot on my show, Unapologetic Live. You can check it out. And if you'd like to support some of this rhetoric and what we're talking about in supporting law enforcement, you can go to PragerU.com slash donate. Your donations this week will be double matched by a generous donor. We'll be back. COVIDtaxrelief.org got a small retail business almost $80,000. COVIDtaxrelief.org got a manufacturing business nearly $250,000. And COVIDtaxrelief.org just got a large distribution business almost $900,000. If you run a business, church, or nonprofit and paid your employees through all or part of the pandemic, you could qualify for up to $26,000 per employee through the government's CARES Act. But beware of clickbait or pay-up-front companies that make you do the work and take a huge percentage of your refund. COVIDtaxrelief.org receives a low, reasonable commission only after you receive your refund. And with 300 CPAs and tax experts, no one is better at getting you the maximum benefit than COVIDtaxrelief.org. Visit COVIDtaxrelief.org now because this plan expires soon. That's COVIDtaxrelief.org, COVIDtaxrelief.org. Refund examples are not a guarantee and not all businesses qualify. Good morning, everybody. 
I love that little intro song, and let me tell you why. Because it says, all I do is win, 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 no matter what, which leads right into our next subject. I am your sit-in host, Amla Epinobi. I'm 22 years old, which means that I am a Gen Z female. And Gen Z is struggling right now, particularly young liberal Gen Z females are struggling, but Gen Z in particular, with depression. Depression, anxiety, Uh, being on antidepressants, all of these things are rising right now uh, within the Gen Z population demographic. And there's a lot of people who are speculating as to why this is happening. And I can give probably a multitude of reasons and explanations for this, but I want to focus on the ideological bend that might be happening uh, amongst young girls in particular. Now, A lot of the science regarding this and the studies uh, compiled of young liberal girls versus conservative girls shows a particular uptrend in depression, anxiety, and these sort of mental disorders starting in 2012, and liberal girls being on the higher end of the spectrum there, conservative girls being on the lower end of the spectrum as far as depression is concerned. Now, A lot of Gen Z liberals in particular say, well, this is happening because reality is depressing for Generation Z. We're in a late stage capitalist hellscape, I believe is what uh, Taylor Lorenz coined uh, that, that phrase. Climate change is ravaging the earth, so they're dealing with and contemplating their existence in an existential way. But I find this kind of hard to believe, that this is what's fueling the depressive nature of Gen Z and Gen Z girls in particular. Because even when you have all this turmoil and you believe that your existence could end and end soon due to something like climate change or late-stage capitalism... All it takes is looking up and being within your community, being with your family, having real life conversations with people to notice that momentarily, in in the moment and in the present that you're in, things are wonderful and beautiful and there is much to be gleaned from the life that you have, whether or not you live in a late stage capitalist hellscape that is being ravaged by climate change. There is beauty to be found in the present moment, which makes me think that there is something in particular that may have began in 2012 that is stopping young Gen Z liberal girls in particular from recognizing their present moment, living in the present moment, which is the most important thing that you can do as a human to bring about your flourishing and come to think of it something really big did happen in 2012 and that's instagram and if you look into the history of the term selfie uh which for those of you who are unfamiliar with the phrase is taking photos of yourself on your iphone with a front camera selfie became part of the public lexicon in 2012 as all these young girls began hopping on social media documenting and highlighting their lives for the world to see so to me that means something's keeping us away from the present moment and if you're looking down at your phone and trying to a live vicariously through others or b create some sort of a highlight reel of your life for the internet rather than living your life That could push some depression. That could push some anxiety alongside things like eating disorders and comparing yourself to other people's lives who you are not living. 
infiltration of harmful ideology, which we all know social media is is famous for, as they collude with the government to push out propaganda on a daily basis. And Gen Z and young Gen Z women in particular are plugged in at all times. This is what they're taking in on a daily basis. It is no wonder to me that they are depressed and they are anxious and they have eating disorders and body dysmorphia because we are quite literally taking in junk food for our brains every single day of our lives. So yeah, that that became part of the, the lexicon in 2012. I think that ushered in quite a bit of a crisis. But alongside that, I think the way that we view ourselves, our lives, and our control over our lives is a pivotal part of that. And I think this is where the deviation between liberal and conservative begins. When I was a liberal or a progressive, I don't even want to call it liberal at this point because that is nowhere near where I was. I was a woke leftist. When I had that mindset, I was constantly feeling like I was swimming in an ocean of injustice with no control, like being caught in a riptide where my emotions were being pulled every which way and I had no agency over that whatsoever. Every cross look was racism or patriarchy. Every bad thing that happened in my life was not under my control, but the control of some system that was pitted against me that had a deep history, a deep rooted history of being against somebody that looked like me. Mental illness is something that is glamorized and fetishized and victimization is as well. It is not powerful to overcome anymore. It's not powerful to get on the other side of something. It is powerful to suffer through something when you have this sort of ideology. And when I was a leftist, I found myself identifying with the problems in my life. They were no longer something external to me. They were me. They were who I was as a person. And now as a conservative, as I said before, I'm no longer trying to control the world, but understand my place within the world and identify who am I without my problems? Who am I as a person? What am I capable of? How do I take on challenges, not as a reference for suffering or my own victimization or a badge that I can place on my chest to say, this is a, I'm a victim and here's why, but how do I see this as something that I can overcome? And you'll find that there are two groups of people, or, or so these researchers are, are saying in this article that I've been reading recently. There are people who have a dominance of external locus of control or an internal locus of control. And let's describe what that means. Your, your locus of control is where you derive value, meaning, where you take direction from and guidance from. So that locus of control can be external from you. For example, during the COVID pandemic, we all sort of found out where our locus of control is centered. You had many groups of people who said, I will look up to the government, to the current administration, to the CDC, to the WHO. I want to hear from them. Whatever they say is our word. This is what we go by. Please tell me what to do. Please tell me how to be complicit in this. 
And then you had others who went, sure, I'll take in this information. I want to hear what you have to say. But at the end of the day, I make decisions for myself as an individual based on my values, my morals, what I believe is to be the right and and proper step forward during what is a very turbulent time in our country. And those are the people who have an internal locus of control. Now, in looking at young liberal women versus young conservative women, they found that the liberal women have a strong bend towards an external locus of control, while conservative women have a strong bend towards an internal locus of control. So to me, it's no wonder that liberal girls are struggling with depression and anxiety. Not only is it a keystone of progressive and leftist ideology, but it's also something that is glamorized, fetishized. It's something that you are told that you should sit in and identify by in order to gain social capital and feel some sort of sense of self. But I can tell you now, uh, that is not making you feel a sense of self at all. It's actually stripping you of a sense of self. And if we could all ask ourselves a question this week, and this is a question that I still struggle with to this day, and I am still trying to answer, it is who are you if you are not your problems? What do you identify yourself as? I like to think I'm compassionate. I like to think I'm a friend. I like to think I'm somebody who is seeking out truth on a daily basis. But, you know, sometimes even with small problems that happen in your life, small inconveniences, we take those in and we identify with them maybe for the rest of our day, maybe for a couple hours, maybe for years to come. But we shouldn't. We need to realize that we are the architects of our own lives and our futures. And while there are many things that are out of our control, one thing that is in our control is our response to them and our attitude and how we face the world. My grandmother taught me that from a really young age. You can't control the things that happen to you, but you can control your response and your attitude. And I hope you leave that, uh, leave with that today from the moments that we've had. And if you want to hear more, check me out at PragerU.com. My friends, a food shortage could be coming. I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's true. So survival food is important. Create your own stockpile of the best-selling For Patriots Survival Food Kits. It's not ordinary food. We're talking good for 25 years super survival food. Hand-packed right in a family-owned facility in the USA, giving jobs to over 200 Americans. The kits are compact, sturdy, water-resistant, and stack easily. They have different delicious breakfasts, lunches, dinners. You can make these meals in less than 20 minutes. Just add boiling water, simmer, and serve. Right now, you can go to 4Patriots. That's the number 4. 4Patriots.com. Use the code Prager to get 10% off your first purchase on anything in the store. You get their famous year-long guarantee after your order and free shipping on orders over $97. Just go to 4Patriots.com to get 10% off with the code Prager. For the number four, Patriots.com, code Prager. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your sit-in host, Amla Bonobi from PragerU. I hope you're all having a winning Thursday morning or afternoon, wherever it is that you are. I can tell you 
a group of people that's not winning right now. And it's the group of people who are still to this day fighting for reparations in the United States of America. I'm in California now where we're having a big battle over this and committees are meeting to talk about possible payments of $225,000 to black residents in the state of California. Really think about that number, $225,000. And even now, some activists are not happy with that number. They're asking for $300,000 or even more than that because nothing can repair the damage apparently done to current black Americans uh, from those that suffered from slavery nearly 200 years ago. Now, before we get into some commentary on this subject matter in particular, I want to play a video of a man talking about reparations, begging for them, and saying there's only one thing that will stop our children from busting into these liquor stores. Let's play that clip. Capital, money, reparations. That will stimulate this economy for the 2.6 million blacks in California. There's only one thing that would stop our children from busting into these liquor stores. There's only one thing that would stop our kids from busting into these jewelry stores, stealing watches and jewelry. And that's reparations. Yeah, I'm going to call a fat negative on that one. (laughs) I don't think that's the one thing that stops young black children from breaking into liquor stores and stealing watches. And I hope that that view is not a widely held view within the the black community. I, I like to think it's not. But if it is, then you're pointing out a big problem because money is not a band-aid for what are deep-seated cultural issues. You know what might stop young people from busting into liquor stores and stealing Rolex watches? Parents, role models, a strong education system that's highly resourced. That might help. That might do something. Putting a $225,000 Band-Aid on a gash that is so large that it can't even be sewn up is probably not going to fix the problem. And of course, we have to point out the illogical nature of paying reparations now nearly 200 years after the crime and the transgression that was slavery. You have people now who never owned slaves paying reparations to people who never were slaves. Can somebody please explain to me how that works? And you know what? I'm sympathetic to the idea of reparations, not in the modern day and age for slavery now. You know when I would have been sympathetic to reparations being paid? When slaves were freed, you know, nearly 200 years ago. Then that 40 acres and a mule probably should have been coughed up to uh, the people who had to endure that suffering. But I think in... 2023, we might have missed the boat on that one. You know, we paid reparations to uh, the Japanese who were held in internment camps. Uh, Jewish people were paid reparations after the Holocaust. But guess what? That happened in a timely manner. We are past the window for for such things. And $225,000 is not going to fix the issues that the black community is facing. I can promise you that. I can promise you that that will not happening. That will not be happening. And so many people are taking their time. I mean, highly educated individuals are taking their time to debate this issue back and forth, talk about how much money needs to be owed. If we spent half as much time 
actually working within the black community, talking to people who are directly affected by the issues that we claim to care about, we'd be doing more work. We'd be helping more. If we spent half as much time trying to get fathers in the household, not even just for black America, but for America as a whole, the family unit is breaking down. This is not a one race issue. It is a people issue. It is a community issue. And if you think it doesn't affect you, it does. If you grew up in a two-parent household, you are lucky. I love that for you. An amazing thing. But the people who didn't do grow to affect your society and they do grow to affect your community. And we'll talk about the, the likelihood of certain things happening to people who grew up without, without fathers. I happen to be one of those people. And luckily, ended up on the more successful end of some of the stats that we have here. People who grow up fatherless are more likely to see the inside of a prison or jail. They are uh, less likely to graduate high school, more likely to drop out of college, more likely to experience a chronic illness, more likely to experience obesity, which is a chronic illness and should be uh, classified as such. They are more likely to not only be victims of rape and domestic violence and abuse, but they are also more likely to be perpetrators of said abuse and rape and violence. So we have a problem. <laughs> Houston, we have a problem and we need to do something about it. And, you know, I, I don't know where it all begins. I'm 22 years old. I don't know how to fix an entire country of families and bring about uh, a cultural revolution in that sense. But I think it starts with saying that it's important. I think it starts with acknowledging the fact that it's an issue. And we've been sort of safeguarded from that acknowledgement because what? We don't want to hurt people's feelings. We don't want to talk about the fact that the issue's there. If we just turn a blind eye to it, maybe it goes away. You know how in Jurassic Park, when the, when the T-Rex is coming, if you just stand still, he doesn't know you're there. <laughs> I don't think that works as far as having broken down households and having children that grow up to be adults as a result of those broken down households. And it's a harrowing thing to, to look at and, and see that this is going to come to fruition and probably for decades to come now because nothing is being done to incentivize these structures. But I can promise you, reparations is not the answer. And I, it's just a, a logistics nightmare as far as I'm concerned. Let's see. If we've got some time here, we'll take a quick call from Mike in Detroit. Hi, Mike. How are you? Oh, good, good. Yeah, I, I'm just really appalled because, you know, it's the, the politics or the policies of the Democratic Party uh, just leaves the inner cities, and I live in one, mm -hmm. you know, in, in just uh, an incredible, uh, you know, disastrous mess in a sense. And when I listen to the Democratic Party, which just, it, you know, I know the history of my family. They were uh, Republicans. They fought in the Civil War to end slavery right. and to preserve the republic. And you've got the Democratic Party trying to transfer their guilt and responsibility for just decades and decades of the, the evil empire of slavery onto Republicans who took 800, you know, white male Republicans, mostly Republicans, took 800,000 casualties during the Civil War, you know, killed, yes. seriously, horribly disabled to end slavery. You are right, Mike. Thank you. Thank you so much for calling about that. And it's an important point to uh, point out. And it's a point that a lot of people got wrong. And I got wrong for a lot of time. And even more so now, they are 
yeah, deflecting blame, deflecting the guilt uh, for a very great transgression and advocating for things that do not help the people that they claim to be advocating for. That is the important part. We can shift blame all day, but right now they are doing distinct and tangible harm to lower income people of color in this country. And you can hear more from me by going to PragerU.com. That's PragerU.com. Okay, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. All right, and we're back. We just got finished talking about reparations, and it looks like we have a call from Tom in St. Paul, Minnesota. Tom, hi, how are you? Hey, great, thank you. You're brilliant, by the way, really. You're doing a great job. Thank you so much. Um, There's hope for America. Anyway, I just wanted to add on to Mike's point a little bit. Um, He got a hold of me before I did, but uh, my family came here after the Civil War from Europe. And my question is, the North fought, I'm in Minnesota, the North fought for the South to free the slaves. And hypothetically, if we were here, it means my forefathers would have died and lost limbs to free the slaves. So why do I have to pay somebody $300,000 when my family's already paid? Tom, you make somebody pay reparations, make it Democrats. They, they're the reason for slavery. Yeah, you're making a very <laughs> great point. Yeah, thank you for your call. And this is part of the crux of the conversation as far as California is concerned. California is a free state. What's a free state? What are we talking about paying reparations and to who? And yes, you make a fantastic point. How many white people fought and died so that slavery could end in the United States of America? And now we pull money from their pockets to pay reparations? Please make it make sense. And I don't think they can make it make sense because a lot of this is just based on what is a strong moral impulse. You'll find if you dive into any sector of wokeness, be it race relations, feminism, and the patriarchy, or even, for instance, some of the fat phobia stuff that's coming out right now and body positivity movement, it starts with what is simply a strong moral impulse that people identify. And what I mean by that, we'll we'll use reparations as an example. Of course, we all have a natural moral impulse to look at something like slavery and go, that was disgusting and horrifying, and I'm terrified to think that that ever happened in the United States of America. There is the impulse. And then you go, well, something must be done about this. We must reconcile this. We must show that we feel guilt and shame for what has happened. And yes, reparations should have been done far, far long ago when the institution of slavery was ended in this country. But now we say in the modern day, what is the most radical thing we could possibly do right now to put a bandage on this wound? And the most radical thing that you can do is, yes, paying $225,000 to people who are living in the free state of California, or to start fueling another racial divide where we look at white people and yell at them for their inherent privilege and their implicit biases, which of course I don't believe in uh, at this current moment. But These are radical, radical fixes to what is a moral impulse that people have. And they run with this and run with it and run with it. And 
sooner rather than later, you have an entire movement and the movement is extremely destructive, although it can make you feel good because it makes you feel good to think you're virtuous. It makes you feel good to think that you're doing something that other people are incapable of doing or that other people simply don't want to do. And the anger that you feel behind this moral impulse is such a strong driving force. But I want to tell people on both sides of the aisle, anger is easy. It's probably one of the easiest emotions that you can feel and verbalize. In fact, uh, there was a recent research done by somebody who studies human emotion where they sat down a bunch of people and asked them, give me words for emotions that you feel on a daily basis. And most people could only say about three words on average. And guess what? One of those three words is anger alongside happiness and sadness. It's because these are easy things to identify in ourselves. They're easy things to verbalize. Anger being the easiest of all because it has a driving force behind it that makes you feel like I'm doing something and I need to and I'm boiling over with this. But get past that for a moment. Of course, feel your anger and there is righteous anger that we can sit in and thrive off of and it pushes us forward and it allows us to persist. But there are far more complex emotions to be sought out and to communicate that are going to be far better for you as an individual and for just public and civil discourse. We don't need more anger we, we, on, on either side of the aisle. And a lot of people get pissed off when I say that because they think I should be a super angry person with everything that's going on right now. And of course, you have those moments, but that's not what I choose to uh, communicate with. What a strong tangent I just went on, so much so that I forgot what we were talking about. That was reparations. <laughs> but yes, the reparations is wholly illogical. We've, we've come too far on just the, the time frame for, for paying it. There are so many people who are just avidly and strongly against discrimination that have no business paying reparations to uh, black people in this country. And there are black people in this country that, quite frankly have no strong relationship to slavery whatsoever, have seen their way out of it, and do not deserve reparations. You can catch more of what I have to say by going to PragerU.com. Just when you thought it couldn't get any better, Mike Lindell with MyPillow is launching the MyPillow 2.0. When Mike invented MyPillow, it had everything you could ever want in a pillow. Now, nearly 20 years later, he discovered a new technology that makes it even better. The MyPillow 2.0 has the patented adjustable fill of the original MyPillow, and now with a brand new fabric that is made with a temperature-regulating thread. The MyPillow 2.0 is the softest, smoothest, and coolest pillow you'll ever own. For my listeners, the MyPillow 2.0 is buy one, get one free offer with promo code Prager. MyPillow 2.0 temperature regulating technology is 100% made in the USA and comes with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Just go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listeners square to the buy one, get one free offer. Enter promo code Prager or call 800-761-6302 to get your MyPillow 2.0 now. Good 
Good morning, everybody. I'm your sit-in host, Amla Panobi, 22 years old, working at Prager U, host of Unapologetic Live, which you can find on all podcast platforms. I want to ask you guys a question. Have you ever seen a news story and thought, I want a day off work because of that? That was so devastating and traumatizing that I need to take the day off. No? <laughs> well, you'd be a little bit more reasonable than a black professor who is now saying that black people deserve something called black bereavement whenever they hear a story of a black individual being shot and killed by police or undergoing some form of police brutality. Here is a story out of uh, Fox News. It says a critical race theorist and professor demands that black people should get special bereavement leave and counseling services in order to deal with issues related to systemic racism. Her name is Angel Jones, and she is a visiting professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville, whose work is grounded in critical race theory and critical race feminism, which essentially means that her work is grounded in nothingness, but that is neither here nor there. Jones argued that black faculty should be granted special paid time off and mental health therapy to deal with events of alleged police brutality in an article published in Times Higher Education on February 23rd. Now, now, I want to really emphasize the quote from this pr- professor in particular and break it down. She says, quote, I am a proud educator who loves what I do. But before that, I am a black woman. And we're going to read more from this quote, but I want to focus on those first two sentences. I'm a proud educator who loves what I do. But before that, I am a black woman. Now, a lot of people hear that progresses in particular and go, wow, what an amazing thing. She is a black woman before anything else. I hear that sentence and I think that is sad. It is sad that somehow uh, our ideology has gotten so warped in this nation that now people are identifying by the shells of themselves. We are all minds to some of you souls and spirits, depending on what your belief system is, who have individual uniqueness, DNA, all of these different things. We just happen to be housed in the bodies that we are housed in. And some of those bodies are white. Some of those bodies are black. uh, Some of these bodies are brown, whatever you want to say. They are simply our bodies. They are our shells. There is so much that is far more unique about ourselves, our thoughts, our feelings, our morals, our values than our skin color. And to say that before anything else, you are a black woman should be a devastating statement and a sign of low mental fortitude as far as I'm concerned. But the quote goes on. She says a black woman who is expected to return to business as usual on Monday after seeing a member of my community murdered on Friday. Although it is customary for employees to receive support and understanding while grieving the loss of a loved one, the same care is rarely shown to the black community when we lose someone in horrific and traumatic ways. Where is our black bereavement leave? Wow, so much to unpack there. Although it is customary for employees to receive support and understanding while grieving the loss of a loved one, meaning when grandma or grandpa passes away or God forbid a wife or a child and you receive time off at work, she expects the same treatment for when somebody who she does not know who she feels some sort of strong attachment to why because they share her skin color when they die in an unfortunate manner, she should get time off work. If we all got time off work every time somebody who had the same skin color as us died in a traumatic or horrific manner, we would all never work another day in our lives. 
but she wants that. And of course, she wants special, a partial treatment towards black people for what she calls black bereavement leave. And she seems to only care when it is a member of the black community who has been lost and only care when the circumstances of that death fits a narrative that she has forced down her throat and the throats of her students based in what critical race theory and critical race feminism, which is just a, a bunch of made up delusional intellectual doublespeak, what, whatever. Anyways, so she she states that when we lose a, a member of the black community, this is when we want our our time off. And she only cares uh, when it's done through the lens of systemic racism. So when black males are shooting themselves in acts of, of gang violence and crime, do you want black bereavement leave then? Or does that simply not fit the structure of the narrative that we've created for ourselves of critical race theory and systemic racism and institutional power? I'm guessing that it just doesn't fit the, fit the narrative that she's told herself. So she doesn't want leave when people are, when black people are losing their lives in that traumatic and horrific way, only when it's at the hands of, of a white police officer. Does she want black bereavement leave when Tyree Nichols died at the hands of multiple black police officers? Does that qualify for her, her statement here? Does that get her a day off work? And why is it that the same is not afforded to people of other races that die in horrific and traumatic ways? One of the things that really gets me going when it comes to the conversation around police brutality is that it is a conversation that should be had. <laughs> there are times where police officers go out over their skis and abuse their power. And there are some people who do enter the police force purely for the sake of abusing the power that they are awarded after their training. But that conversation affects people of all races. Why has this been made to be a black issue? And why is it that we only care when it's a black person who has lost their lives in this unfortunate and horrific way? It should be a conversation for all. And when we make these things about race and race alone, we actually stop ourselves from being able to reach the root of the problem. If we're focusing on racism and white supremacy, who's talking about training? If we're focusing on uh, race and white supremacy, who's focusing on the mental health of police officers? If we're focusing on race and white supremacy, who's focusing on the fact that a lot of these police officers are overworked and they're really tired and they're pulling triple shifts when they should not be? Nobody's focusing on these things because they don't go for the approved narrative. So... I can't imagine this ever taking root. I will be shocked if we get an update to this story that now says that this campus is going to be engaging in something known as black bereavement leave, but it's just a sign of the times. And I would guess postulate that this woman is probably a millennial or a Gen Z person because I can't think of a ridiculous idea <laughs> coming from somebody who's older than... <laughs> than Gen Z or millennial. The amount of excuses we've made to miss a day of work are astounding. And I wonder what she's doing on on this day off. I would love uh, a camera to be placed on this woman, a, a body cam uh, for that matter, to be placed on her when she's taking her black bereavement leave after somebody loses their life at the hands of a police officer. I can't imagine she's going to be sitting around her apartment grieving. She'll probably be putting on a face mask and eating food and watching Netflix and just simply wanting a day off work. 
people are using this ideology and these moral impulses to gain social capital, to gain virtue, or at least be able to virtue signal to other people, and to gain, apparently, days off work. We've already touched reparations. Maybe maybe this is the new form of reparations. Maybe we'll get a proposition where black people say, I want X amount of days off of work to be used at any given moment, and that's a form of reparations that they now think that they deserve. I just cannot believe I saw this story coming from a professor. But like I said, she's a professor of critical race theory and critical race feminism, which is basically means she's not a professor. <laughs> and I've talked about the pipeline of these sort of thoughts. Again, it starts with the moral impulse that some pseudo intellectual has surrounding race and feminism. And then they go, you know what, I think I'm going to write this down in a journal, which is what we saw with Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, Gene Stefancic, Richard Delgado. These are the people who wrote up critical race theory. And it's the critical race theory that we're now dealing with on large scale in this country. They had this moral impulse. They thought, I want to do something radical about this. Let's write a journal called critical race theory. And those journals, of course, became more journals and published and published and published. And then eventually the people who wrote these journals became tenured in their institutions and ended up teaching a class of disciples who went on to graduate high school and have critical race theory uh, degrees that then infiltrated other spheres of influence in our country, which is why Hollywood and media and all these corporations are bound to this idea of perpetual victimhood and critical race theory. It started in academia. Hopefully it ends in academia. And that's why we focus on education at PragerU.com. This donation week, if you donate to us, it will be double matched by a generous donor. You can do that by going to PragerU.com slash donate. Also check out some of our free content. It's at PragerU.com. We'll be back. The Dennis Prager Show. And we're back. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your sit-in host, Amala Epinobi. You can check out my show, Unapologetic Live, by going to YouTube or checking it out on all podcast platforms. This time around, let's take some calls. I'd like to hear from Tom in Alvin, Texas. Amala. Hi. This goes back to the last hour when you were talking about reparations. And unlike your other callers, I do have ancestors who own slaves. Uh, I'm from a large Cajun family, and mm-hmm. uh, we had, um, we did have, uh, you know, that in our family, in our history. Uh, we also had a history of being basically kicked out of Canada when the British took over from the French. And, uh, you know, so I wonder if we should be entitled to reparations from Canada for that. Right. <laughs> But um, but I my personal atonement uh, for the sins of my ancestors is to disavow the Democrat Party. So I'm not voting for Democrats anymore. Amazing, Tom. Thank you so much for your call. I think you're doing a wonderful service for the black community. They may not recognize it yet, but you've got at least one half black person who recognizes what you're doing for us right now. So kudos to you and, and thank you for that. And yes, you bring up an astounding point there. He said, should my family not be owed reparations for what happened to us? And this is what people get confused about the history of slavery. Or maybe they're not confused and they just turn a blind eye. Every single race that has ever existed or will ever exist has been subjugated at one point or another in their history. At what point are we going to track back for them and have them get their reparations that they're all due? Slavery is not a uniquely American problem. 
it's an everywhere problem. If anything is unique about America or say even the UK, it's that we were at the forefront of abolishing slavery. So maybe that should be recognized. We have this view of American history, and you'll see this a lot in the movies that come out in today's time. Everything is so depressing. And of course, there were transgressions that were committed and bad things that happened. But history, it seems like now, is not viewed through the light of progress. We're not looking at things as something that we've overcome or really clawed our way out of. We are viewing everything as something that we've suffered through. And what a horrible way to view the world. Again, you must be the master of your own self and take accountability for yourself. Not to say that that should be done uh, in looking at, at slavery, because there are people who had simply no choice. But we should look at it as something that we've progressed out of and see how unified we are as a society now compared to where we were then. Uh, I'd like to hear now from Susan in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hi. Hi, Susan. How Hi. are you? Good. How about you? I'm doing well. Good. Talking about the Black Bereavement Leave, mm-hmm. I think that is as ridiculous as saying... I want bereavement leave because I had to get, I was upset over watching Leah Thomas right. beat the women in the NCAA swimming. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then again, I want bereavement leave for being called the WAP <laughs> because in the past, because I'm Italian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, if you use this ideology, thank you so much for your call to justify the things that you want, which it just seems like this professor wants a day off of work. That's how it seems to me. You can find any reason to to justify that. And in a day where the threshold for offense is so abundantly low, it's crazy what people get offended by in today's day and age, then yeah, you might as well get a day off for having to watch a transgender woman or as I like to call it, a biological man <laughs> compete against females in their sport. Or when you uh, get called some racially insensitive derogatory term, there is so much that we have to face in this life that is uncomfortable and challenging and not nice. But that doesn't mean that we stop working. It doesn't mean that we stop getting up every morning and doing what it is that we have to do. Let's hear from Max in Rancho Santa Margarita, California. Ooh, what a name that is. Hi, Max. Oh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Of course. Uh, with regards to the idea that uh, African-American black citizens should have a day off from work, I think that, uh, and I am being sarcastic, the idea has merit. And I would <laughs> like to see that experiment started with black police officers. Nobody experiences more trauma and witnesses more harm to other human beings in this country hmm. than working police officers. And I would like to see the effect of Black police officers and other officers being given two or three days off in high crime neighborhoods while they reconcile themselves after seeing the kind of things they have to see on a given day. And I'd like to see the professor explain how she would like to see that result occur. Yeah, Max, thank you so much for your call. You make a very <clears throat> valid point there in saying that, yeah, these police officers, it. It's been wild for me in my own personal experience, having uh, gone to the police station in South Central and working with these police officers on multiple occasions now and just seeing what they go through and how desensitized they are to the trauma that they endure and, and what others endure. They are seeing some very horrific things on any given day. We are talking uh, gang violence, drug addiction, prostitution running rampant in this city in particular, 
young girls being victimized by human trafficking, which is uh, really running amok in the United States more so than any other country. And they have to witness this and hopefully approach it with somewhat of uh, a lack of bias and try to help people who sometimes don't want to be helped sometimes cannot be helped by virtue of the position that they're in, what their family situation is like, the neighborhoods that they're in. And they have to face that every single day and then wake up in the morning the next day and do it. And it takes a toll on them mentally. And it's a mental toll that they're never really able to unburden themselves of because there's very few people that they can go and talk to. Of course, there's therapists and and this and that, but they do run the risk of putting their jobs in danger by being uh, truthful about what what it is they're really facing mentally and the anguish that they're facing. It's a tough, tough job to have. And, you know, nobody is angrier at a bad police officer than a good police officer. They hate when things like this happen because it makes their profession look horrible and it makes the good work that they're trying to do look horrible. And I really recommend to anybody who... Even if you are in massive support of law enforcement, go check out their work and and see what they do. See if you can set up a ride along in your respective cities and go and look at what they do for a day. As I said earlier in today's show, I had a crazy experience of being on a ride along and watching somebody pass away due to gun violence here in Los Angeles. And I will never forget that moment in my life. And police officers have to see that all the time all the time i just simply can cannot imagine it ever so do it and check it out if you're in full support of of police officers you'll learn about bad things that police officers have done if you are not in support of officers you'll learn about the truly good work that they are doing behind the scenes that doesn't really get the acknowledgement that it deserves so if you'd like to check out more, I actually have a video of doing a police ride-along on PragerU. You can check it out at PragerU.com. And if you'd like to donate to the work that we're doing, the content that we're creating, your donation this week will be double-matched. You can check that out by going to PragerU.com slash donate. March is our fundraising month, so consider giving a gift if you'd like. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your sit-in host, Amala Epinobi. I'm 22 years old, and I currently work at PragerU as a personality. That's right. I'm employed by Dennis Prager's organization. I host a show called Unapologetic Live, which you can check out on YouTube and virtually all podcast platforms. Plus, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, 
Getter, you know, all those fun platforms that we know and love. Former leftist, now conservative, who's just coming here to talk to you guys this morning. Now, I'd like to take another call here. Let's hear from Tom in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hi, Tom. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, good. Um, I hear a lot of people pro-police on this station, the last couple callers. and mm-hmm. It just seems like you were saying that people freak out when someone black gets killed by a police officer. But a lot of Republicans freaked out when Ashley Babbitt got killed by a police officer. Sure. And I just want to ask you, do you support that police officer who killed her? No, of course not. I think that's it. Uh, I, I do not support a police officer who, who killed Ashley Babbitt. I think that was a very un- unfortunate and horrific situation. Now, I why? think people. Why? Yeah, if she would have complied, she never would have gotten shot. I, I understand that, but I think that was a an excessive use of of force in that uh, specific situation. Uh, thank you for your for your call, Tom. I do think that was an excessive use of force in the situation, and I do think uh, we we can get into the January six footage that has now come out uh, from from Tucker Carlson, and I know there's a lot of muddy waters as far as this is concerned. A lot of police officers and uh, individuals who are there are coming out with different stories about what happened on January 6th. Politicians are now condemning the fact that this footage has been brought out during January 6th. Now, I do think there is an element of yes. When a police officer tells you to do something, you must comply. I'm not very familiar with the Ashley Babbitt uh, footage in particular. I don't really go around watching uh, videos of police officers get engaging in this sort of activity although when it's a a major story of course i i'm not in support of of something like that of course you comply i do think it was an excessive use of force however and there was no immediate danger being faced by the police officer who did choose to pull out his weapon and shoot her she uh was unarmed and this is how we look at these situations you have to take into account all the factors that are are taking place in these situations and there are plenty of instances of police brutality against individuals who are black that i look at and go absolutely not that is unacceptable and that is an abuse of power on the police officer side we should be able to engage in these conversations with nuance you don't have to come in full disrespect of all police officers and everybody who has the, the profession like many progressives have today but you also don't have to come in full support of every single police officer who is in the force as many conservatives i'm sure do today there is nuance and i think nuance is lost in the conversation and we need to bring that back we very much do and january 6th i don't know how anybody in this moment in time could come out in full force and have any super distinct opinion about what happened that day and in particular what happened in regard to somebody like Ashley Babbitt losing her life because there is so much muddy water surrounding what happened on the date of January 6th. Tucker Carlson has just brought that to light with the recent footage that he's played on his show, much to the chagrin of people who have been trying to cover up what happened and tell lies about what happened and how anybody could have clarity about what happened 
on that day is beyond me or how anybody could feel strongly about who's implicated in the events of January 6th is beyond me. Now, I haven't watched all the footage. I don't claim to have gone through and seen everything that happened on that day. I'm not sure you could even if you tried because so much so much of it is being hidden and and shielded from the American public. But again, how anybody could have any clear Uh, indication of what happened or who they are for or against in that situation is beyond me. Now, let's take another call from Phil in Cleveland. Hi, Phil. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Um, I just wanted to comment on work about this, what this lady said and the the special bereavement and so on and so forth. And I wanted to just explain that when I was growing up, uh, first of all, there was no such thing as black and white. Hmm. In fact, there was no such thing as white at all. In my neighborhood, um, there were two larger groups, uh, ethnic groups, and uh, about 35% each. And um, we, Phil, I'm going to uh, have to cut you off for the sake of time. I'm going to bring you back in the next segment to talk through this. But I heard that you said there's no difference between black and white when you were growing up. And I would like to explore that more and actually have an interesting story there. So we'll get back with Phil in the next segment. The Dennis Prager Show. All right, and we're back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I did take a moment during the break to actually look up the footage of what happened to uh, Ashley Babbitt during January 6th. And again, I stand by my statement of not being in support of this uh, police officer in particular based off of what I've just seen. It looks like she was climbing uh, a door or into a window, and the police officer from a position of safety shot an unarmed woman down to the ground. Now, of course, we all stand by the, the statement that if a police officer asks you to do something, that you should probably comply in in that moment because you have somebody who is in a very distinct position of authority asking you to do something and simply trying to do their job. Now, does that mean we approach all instances of non-compliance without measure and we use lethal force in all instances of non-compliance and that's somehow justifiable based on the statement that you should simply comply to what police officers do? Not in my opinion. As I said before, all things require nuance. We are going to go back to that call with Phil in Cleveland, Ohio, and we also have a police officer calling in to talk about Ashley Babbitt, so maybe we'll go there next. Uh, Phil, we're back. You said you grew up without having a such thing as uh, black and white. White. The terms didn't exist. There was no such thing. It only came about later on after the Civil Rights Movement when this uh, uh, Antifa-style group uh, called the Black Panthers came about, and they were just trying to gross everybody out with the terms. When I was growing up, uh, I lived in a neighborhood that was um, 35% one ethnic group, 35% another, and anyone else who had the nerve to live there. And we never had anything to do with the other ethnic ethnic group. And there were slang words to describe the ethnic group. And there were slang words for us. Hmm. And and when we played on the base and we played in the playground, we never played together. We never played apart. And if we played at all together, it was against on opposite sides. And that's the way it was. And the first time I met a uh, African-American person, uh, I was on a basketball court and it was uh, uh, an African-American um, a religious team against my team, which was uh, a religious team. Hmm. And we had a great game and we played tough. And afterwards, we all shook hands and we went our merry way. And there was nothing about race, nothing about any of these things. And what happened in my neighborhood after I grew up and I met these people and I, I, we'd run into each other, we'd laugh about it and uh, we loved our neighborhood and we, we were involved in our, our own group. 
and it intensified our families. And we had a place, and we we knew that we we were we were accepted in our place, and that was all okay. We weren't just adrift. It was it was a it was a good thing. It wasn't always easy. I got called a few names, and and that's the way it was. Sure. Um, that was life. And I heard something the other night that really really enhanced this. And that was, I was listening to the Officer Tatum show, and he was talking about, his from his point of view, the civil rights movement was one of the most powerful forces to stop the, the advance of the black nation. Now, mm. when, when Martin Luther King was alive and his groups were, were, um, were protesting, and you'd see them, and you'd see these young men who were uh, um, parade, going along with him, behind him, in, in, in great crowds, going, uh, you know, marching, these were young men with suits on and ties and and white shirts and fedoras, and they were yeah. they were straight young guys. They were moving somewhere in the world, and they were admirable. And they were and and you had to look at them and say, "Wow, these are these are good people," you know. And 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 that's what it was. And so when I look at all this stuff today, and I think what he was saying, what Officer Tatum was saying is that um, it stopped people from being responsible for themselves. It made everything into black and white, which it isn't. It's just like you were saying, nuance, nuance, nuance. There is no one black in this country. There isn't a single right. person who is black. Right. And, there, and there isn't. I don't think there's a single person that's white. Maybe there is. I don't know. But this has all got totally into politics. This is controlled by the, I'm, I'm, I believe, this is really a leftist, program to to try and separate people to try and harm them and try and and get control of them and it's very unfortunate and we're being susceptible to it and now it's gotten to the point of insanity yes thank you so much phil for your call yeah you know race is not something that racism is not really all that natural to us there's this really cute story of these two kindergarten boys going to school uh and and meeting each other one white and one black based on today's terminology and they meet and they go home the next day and they go and they get their haircut the same as each other. And they show up to school the next day and they, tell, they go up to the teacher and say, look, we're twins. And there was no recognition of the difference in, in skin color. They simply wore similar outfits and got the same, the same haircut. And that was all it took to say, we're twins. We are exactly alike. We are two human beings who look exactly alike in this moment. And what a beautiful thing that... Uh, we have just naturally in us as as humans to just want to be compassionate and love each other and want to be one with one another. And that has been really just burned by ideology. And I, I, I won't necessarily blame the civil rights movement in itself because there was clearly inequalities that needed to be addressed. But it did certainly bring about a, a rhetoric that uh, was not helpful at all for American civilization. And it just sucks to see how much it has proliferated and how we're dealing with it now in a way that is just so inhumane and so full of hatred. And it's so unnecessary. You know, Morgan Freeman says, you know, the way that we stop racism and all these problems is we, we stop talking about it. We stop complaining about it. We go on about our days and things fall into line because that's what we naturally do as humans. So thank you so much for your call. I want to hear from Tim in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, who says he's a police officer that wants to talk Ashley Babbitt. Hi, Tim. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Uh, just wanted to kind of go to the point that you were talking about with Ashley Babbitt. Yeah. Um, 
every police officer is taught use of force. Now, I, I absolutely agree with you 100%. That was, in any other circumstance, that use of force would not be justified. Mm-hmm. But when it comes down to politics, it seems like there's a motivation behind everything that is enforced in the media. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're judged on the merits of, well, does this appear to be a racist act or does it not appear to be a racist act? And what I think needs to change or what will change society is if we start looking at the merits of people individually yes. and we stop and we allow people to be responsible for their actions and stop looking at race and color. Thank you, Tim, for that call. I really appreciate that. Sorry for the sake of time. I must say what you said there is great. We'll be back. And we're back for our final segment for today. I'm Amla Benobi. I work at PragerU, hosting a show called Unapologetic Live, which you can check out on all podcast platforms. Plus, it's on YouTube. We'll be live uh, tomorrow, Friday, at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. Also, a great treat for you all. Dennis will be back tomorrow to host his radio show. I'm just sitting in for the day. So I hope you enjoyed your time with me as I have enjoyed my time with you. I wanted to quickly touch on the notes from the police officer who was talking about Ashley Babbitt and saying we need to start judging people based on merit and not judging them based on whether they fit the narrative that we have prescribed ourselves or the media has prescribed or the agenda that we're trying to push forth. And when we start to operate in that way, that is almost truly make a difference. When we can view things objectively without being clouded by lenses that we look through, that's what's important to us and what should be important to all involved in our lives, especially the media. And I think more so than ever, we're realizing that that is not the case. And in some ways, a revolution needs to be brought about in in that sense, as far as the information that we get, how we get that information, how biased that information is. And that's why people are looking to independent sources. That's why you guys are listening to Dennis Prager, some of you, Joe Rogan, uh, the Daily Wire folks, anybody. That's why we're we're seeking out other sources because there's not a lot of a lot to rely on in this day where everybody is fueled by by propaganda and their own biases. I guess I'll close out today's show with one. We have our challenge. Let's go outside and get 30 minutes outside today and see if we can all collectively do that. We'll be better off for it. You know, when people insult and say, go touch grass. I mean that in the literal sense. Maybe we should all go touch some grass (laughs) and get grounded in our, our life and our position within the world today and try not to control our position or to control the world around us, but to feel connected and grounded in it and understand our position within the world today. Also to operate with compassion for those of us, uh, uh, for those around us, especially those that disagree with us, because that will be the hardest practice of your lifetime, probably (laughs) trying to understand and feel compassion for the people who we disagree with on what our life's major issues of today. So that's what I'll be keeping in my mind and in my heart as I move into today. I hope you guys have had a good three hours here sitting with me and maybe you learned something. Maybe a different, maybe you didn't, and <laughs> that's okay too. I'm, I'm learning something new every day. I've had a pleasure uh, calling and talking to you guys. As I said, Dennis is going to be back tomorrow, but I am here because of 
PragerU's March fundraising month. If you'd like to support some of the work we're doing, the content that we're creating, which is all free for your hearts and minds, you can go to PragerU.com slash donate. You can check out my show, Unapologetic Live, on YouTube and all podcast platforms. I'm on all social media platforms as well. Let's go touch some grass. Bye, guys. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.